Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is on page 1014 in your pew Bibles. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. Would you keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter? as we pray together this morning. God, we ask this morning that as we open your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask that uh, this time together would be one that encourages our hearts and glorifies your name. And we ask, God, that we would leave this place having seen your gospel more clearly. We ask these things in the name of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the more observant in our midst this morning will have already noticed something familiar about the passage that we're looking at today. Because, in fact, Bruce preached a sermon on this very passage just a few weeks ago. But just like we did with the first passage that we looked at in 1 Peter, we're taking a second look at this paragraph. And there are a few reasons that that can be necessary. First, because there is so much in each of these passages that it can be helpful to take multiple looks at each one to notice different things each time. Second, because the opening passages of many New Testament epistles often touch on multiple major themes that will be further explored in the body of the letter itself, and so these opening paragraphs can be uh, really dense and complex. And third, perhaps most importantly, because Bruce and I have been told that we are not allowed to preach two-hour sermons, so we felt like we should break it up a little bit. So we're taking a step back this morning to take a second look at this critical paragraph from 1 Peter to examine some of the things that we didn't have the time to dig into last time. This passage is essential for us and worth taking a second look at. It's essential for all Christians because it helps us make sense of many things in life. It clarifies some of our deepest questions, or it clarifies answers to some of our deepest questions and the concerns that lurk on the edges of our faith. It helps us understand how we can sing the words, it is well with my soul, when perhaps it is not well, 
and with everything else in our lives. As Bruce showed us two weeks ago or three weeks ago, this passage shows us why God is ultimately worthy of our praise and why He is the source, the source of all of our joy. And by using some common ancient verbiage for worship, Peter opens this passage by saying, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter and those who have trusted in the Lord for salvation and new life bless the Lord in joyful worship because of what he's done and because of his great mercy. But this passage is dense. It has layers and several important points to make. Sometimes when Jessica and I are sitting down to a meal and one of us says grace before we eat our food, uh, we'll find ourselves praying for things that, are com- that come to mind as we're praying. Praying for the people in our lives and for situations that are unfolding. Expressing our gratitude for the many ways in which we've seen God's blessing recently in what develops into a long and sort of meandering prayer. It's kind of a stream of consciousness prayer. And it can easily feel as we read this passage from 1 Peter like that's what's happening here because it's dense and layered and has lots of important points to make. Often when Jessica and I are saying grace before a meal, we find ourselves remembering after we've said amen that we forgot to say anything to God about the food, and so we add a quick, oh, and also for the food, after the prayer. Peter does not do that. He's not forgetting things. He's not haphazardly introducing new ideas. He's being led by the Spirit to craft an incredibly dense and important passage for the church. But it is a long and meandering series of ideas and important concepts. In fact, in Greek, the original language in which this passage was written, all of verses 3 through 9 are one long run-on sentence. You can get away with that in Greek. You cannot get away with that in ninth grade English class. Reading it, it feels a little bit like Peter wanted to say an entire letter's worth of things in this one sentence. And I think as we read it, it's easy to see why Peter is so jazzed, why he's so excited about these concepts, because he's addressing some vital concerns for Christians in the first century and throughout the history of the church. This letter, 1 Peter, is is addressed to people throughout a large region rather than to a specific church or individual like many other New Testament epistles. And that means that the specific instruction in this book is broadly applicable and valuable to Christians in various contexts and different cultures. Peter is writing to address issues that are relevant for Christians in every context. Because the unifying situation that all of the various recipients of this letter had in common was a difficult one. For many onlookers in the first century, Christianity did not seem to be a worthwhile belief system. Christians in the first century were mistreated and would very shortly be persecuted by the Roman imperial government. For believers like Stephen, a Christian in the very first days of the church, worshiping God and proclaiming his faith resulted in his violent death. And for many in ancient Near Eastern communities, it was a mystery why anyone would believe in the God that these Christians worshipped. It was a fundamental flaw in the system, they reasoned, to worship a God who does not protect you or guarantee your safety. And these are significant challenges to the church. And if we're honest, they're questions that can creep into our hearts and minds as well. Because it's easy to believe that God loves me when my life is good. When everyone that I love is healthy, 
and my job is fulfilling. And when God says to his people, the Lord will fight for you in Exodus 14, it's easy to trust that he will fight for us also when things in life are just the way that we want them. It's easy when life is good and the sun is shining to understand the teaching of Jesus when he tells, when he tells his disciples that God desires to give good gifts to those who ask him. But there are times in our lives when trusting in those promises is much harder and feels as though it may even be impossible. Moments that drive us backward, when the shadow of doubt creeps in and we find ourselves wondering where God could be in all of this. Sometimes it's huge, catastrophic loss that seems absolutely impossible to face. Other times it's smaller in scale, but not necessarily easier for us to understand. Just this week I was visiting with Julie about when she and Garrett moved to Haiti. They made friends quickly with another missionary couple there that they met and lived next door to, and they formed an incredibly close connection with these people that they loved as brothers and sisters in Christ, and in whom they found incredible support and comfort. But not long afterward, those same friends broke the news that they would be moving to Canada within a few months. And Julie shared with me how hard that news was to hear as they sat in a foreign country hearing that their closest friends were leaving them behind. Moments like that make us wonder, God, why would you do things this way? I had plans for them, you know? There's a tension that exists between trusting in God's promises to bless his people and the day-to-day -day experience of the difficulty of life in a broken world. It's a question that's posed by the prophet Habakkuk in the short Old Testament book that bears his name. He asks in the opening verses of that book, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. These are hard questions that we ask when our trust in God's love and provision are truly put to the test. How can God be good? How can he say that he loves his people when they suffer and endure persecution and hardship? How can Peter, who was in the middle of hardship and would go on to die as a martyr himself, lead these people in worship saying, blessed be the, the, Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, with rejoicing in his heart while he writes these words to those who have endured trials of various kinds, according to verse 6, trials that are about to get a lot worse. Because while the state-sanctioned persecution of the church has not begun yet at the time of the writing of this letter, it will within just a few years, and that tension has already revealed itself throughout the Roman Empire. Peter understands something essential about the relationship between following Christ and suffering something that is so vital that it must be shared at the very opening of this letter. That the Christian life is not one that is free of suffering, but one whose hardship is redeemed by a suffering Savior, who secures for his people a better future so that they can truly rejoice in the midst of suffering itself. Said another way, what Christ has done in the past redefines how we live in the present, by giving us hope for the future.
God does promise His people security and blessing. And they are won by Christ on the cross for all who trust in Him as Lord. Though Scripture does not guarantee lives that are free of suffering, but instead lives that are destined for glory. The finished work of the cross and the empty tomb are the basis on which Christians can say, along with Paul in 2 Corinthians, that we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and not yet killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Life as a Christian is life in the tension between trusting in God's love and provision and feeling the sting of a broken world every day as we suffer loss and pain, fear, heartache, and the hatred of the world for our Savior. This passage opens with a declaration of God's praiseworthiness, which might simply be because He is triune, he is eternal, he is creator, or he is master of the universe. But Peter does not point to these things as the basis for God's praiseworthiness. Instead, he says in verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That finished work has already been carried out, and it is the reason that Peter gives for God's worthiness of blessing and praise, as Bruce pointed out three weeks ago. And while there are many, many reasons that Peter could give for God's praiseworthiness, he gives this one because it speaks most directly to the concerns of first century believers and those throughout the history of the church who face suffering and heartbreak because the mercy of God has provided for a new birth. That concept, what it means to be born again, is a unique one that I think could be more confusing than it ought to be. It is likely a reference to a comment made by Jesus early in his ministry when he told Nicodemus that no one who is not born again can enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus didn't understand what Jesus meant by that or how it could be possible, and he asks, how can someone be born again? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus' implication here is that there's something wrong, some, something desperately wrong, that only a new start could remedy. And the essence of Nicodemus's question is a concern that we don't get to start over. There is no reset button. The mistakes that we've made in life, the pain that we've felt in life, cannot be erased. The ways we've turned away from God in life and rebelled against His holiness cannot simply be undone, yet... Jesus says that is the only way. And that conversation is what Peter is pointing to in the opening of this epistle. But Peter doesn't use exactly the same words as Jesus when he talks about being born again. They're a little bit different in Greek from what Jesus said, though they're translated the same way in English. And if you'll bear with me while I nerd out for just one second, I think it will be worth it. Jesus uses the literal words, for born and again. Born genao, and again anothin. And Peter is using a new word, a distinctly Christian word, which only occurs in Scripture here in 1 Peter. Grammatically speaking, it's like Peter just smashed together the words for born and again and formed a new word, anagenao. And what that signifies is important. To be born again, begotten again by God, is not merely to have been through an experience 
like when I was born 32 years ago in Thornton, Colorado. That happened in the past. I was born, but in Christ, I am born again. In Christ, we are presently people who are born again. Those who have been made new, restored, and set right. Those who have been given a new start. It is to have been given a new identity. One who is anaganao, born again into God's family. And it is that identity that Peter will point to as the basis on which Christians are able to persevere in the midst of trial. Peter points to this as the means by which we are given a living hope that Jesus died for his people and conquered death three days later. And all of this is looking backward to a point in the past when through Christ's sacrifice and victorious resurrection, we were made alive again. It is an already true description of what Christ has already done, but its effects are in the present and they shape the future. Peter says that Christians are born to or into a living hope, and an inheritance, both of which look forward. The work of justification is in the past. The work of Christ paying for our sin is in the past, but its full impact is yet to come. I often describe this concept to students like a football game in which your team is leading by 99 points in the fourth quarter. The work to assure victory has already been done. The opposing team is not going to come back. There's no way they could. They're not going to fight back that 99-point deficit. It's the part of the game, the last few minutes, when your team is on top that we call garbage time, when nothing really interesting is happening and everybody's just running out the clock because there's no way that your team in this situation will lose. But even though at this point in the game, victory has been assured and the work has been done, none of the players have championship rings yet. No trophies have been handed out. No player has been awarded the MVP award because the full weight of that victory is yet to be realized. And so Peter says we have been born into a new and living hope, which according to one scholar is you could, you could redefine or describe hope as faith in the future tense. It's confidence about the future, that things will be as they should be. It's an eager expectation that what lies ahead of us will be good. And as Bruce mentioned to us a few weeks ago, it's more than a wish. It is an expectation that flows from a risen Savior and an empty tomb. We don't merely wish that things will work out. We have a living hope, a confident anticipation that comes from the fact that our Savior is alive and reigning. In the same way that if your team is leading by 99 points in the fourth quarter, you have a confident expectation that they will emerge victorious. That faith in the future tense, that hope, is a present attitude about what lies ahead. And similarly, Peter's description of what we receive in Christ as an inheritance also looks toward the future. It comes from being part of God's household. It is a birthright of those who have been born again into that family. That birthright is a present reality, but the full weight of that fact is not fully realized yet. That remains over a future horizon. It's like if you have a super rich great uncle, and he tells you that he's drafted a will that ensures that you will inherit his mansion. 
In that situation, I don't know exactly what the right response would be, what the appropriate thing to say would be. Thank you doesn't really seem appropriate. That would be weird. Saying, that's so generous, also strange, doesn't seem to fit either, since it's not like he could have kept it anyway. I don't know what the right thing to say in that situation would be, but I do know that the wrong thing to say in that situation would be, great, can I have the keys now? The promise of an inheritance is a present reality that will be fully realized in the future. Elsewhere in Scripture, inheritance is understood either in legal terms to define literally the actual physical possessions that someone hands down to their descendants after their death, but it was also used to to point to a divine inheritance, the promised land that God gave to his people in the Old Testament. It was given to them, this land, as an inheritance received from God and given from generation to generation. It represented God's provision and the people's home and their place of belonging. In the New Testament, this concept of divine inheritance is broadened in scope. And one scholar describes it as a believer's share in a heavenly kingdom. It is still a place of belonging and a home. But in Christ, it is an eternal home. It is the fulfillment of all of the hope of the promised land. It is secure and eternal, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, according to verse 4. Peter's use of these three synonymous descriptive terms indicate his emphasis. This inheritance is permanent and unbreakable. It will never diminish, never crumble, and never lose its beauty. It's hard for us, I think, to imagine such a fantastic gift. Because everything that we know and everything that we love in this world is temporary. Everything that we see and savor and enjoy has an expiration date. Some more quickly than others, but even those things in our lives that we love that seem the most permanent will eventually wither. And feeling that loss is painful. The first audience that received this short letter from Peter were people who had felt that loss. In addition to feeling and experiencing the difficulty and struggle of daily life, they had begun to experience persecution for following Christ and were ostracized in their communities for their faith. That is a major theme in the entire book of 1 Peter. Throughout the letter, Peter refers to their suffering and the trials that they face and the difficulty that they endure for the sake of their faith. Archaeological discoveries from this region during the first century have revealed that Roman governors from the area had written to the emperor to ask how best to deal with this growing Christian movement and what strategies would best diminish the growth of the church. And the answer that they received was physical abuse and economic pressure. Full-blown violent persecution was just around the corner, but it was already beginning to show, its, to show itself in isolated incidents. So with social, governmental, and cultural pressure coming from all sides, these fragile Christian communities needed the reminder of this passage and the entire book because they were not unaccustomed to the loss of things that they loved. They weren't unfamiliar with the experience of things that are perishable, defiled, and fading. And all of us 
know what that feels like. Every one of us know what it's like to love things in this life that are perishable, defiled, and fading. But in Christ, we receive something unlike anything we have known before, something permanent and unshakable. The words that Peter uses to describe this inheritance are not incidental. They're not exactly common words in the New Testament, and so each of their occurrences is significant. God himself is described as imperishable in Romans and 1 Timothy. Jesus, in his description as our great high priest in Hebrews 7, is declared to be undefiled. And the only other time that the word for unfading occurs in the entire Bible is here in 1 Peter to describe the reward that Christ will give to his people one day, an unfading crown of glory. It's clear that what's valuable about this inheritance that we receive in Christ is not material, but relational. It will be the fruit of knowing the God who is imperishable, who is undefiled, and who can give that which is unfading. But I think that brings us right back to where we started, to the acknowledgement of the tension that exists between knowing God and trusting His promises for us and experiencing the brokenness of the world. Because the inheritance that believers are promised in this passage is, according to this passage, kept in heaven for you. It is being guarded and held secure while at the same time God guards us. It is, according to Peter, kept in heaven for you who, are, who are, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That sentence, or that part of this run-on sentence, is a hard pill to swallow, I think. It's a difficult message for us to hear. And many, many, many Christians have sought to avoid what it has to say. Our desire to avoid what this passage has to say is the reason why Joel Osteen and other prosperity gospel preachers say things like, it is God's will for you to live in prosperity instead of poverty. It is God's will for you to pay your bills and not be in debt. Or, if you do your part, God will do His, and He will promote you. He will give you increase. The prosperity gospel rightly hears God's assurance of blessing to those who follow Christ. But it mistakes those blessings, those promises, for promises of money and wealth, and promotions, and new cars, and it expects them right now. And that is what we want Scripture to say. We desperately want the Bible to say that. Believers in first century Asia Minor would have certainly received that message with joy. If Peter had said, instead of what he does say, if he had said, God desires to give you safety and prosperity and long and healthy lives, they would have rejoiced to hear it. And people today still do. Churches like Joel Osteen's are full to capacity because we desperately want the Bible to say that God is just waiting to give you everything you desire, and He will as soon as you do your part, according to Osteen. Or as soon as we sow the seeds of faith by contributing to His ministry. It's what we wish Scripture said because it would give us control. 
it would mean that we could get ourselves out of suffering and hardship by trying harder, by believing more or tithing more. But that is not the message of this passage or any part of the Bible. God does promise that He loves us, that He will protect us, that He will provide for us, and that He will pour His blessing out on us. But we still live in a broken world. There is an inheritance kept for us, guarded for us, while God Himself guards us through faith until the day that we receive the full weight of Christ's victory. What Christ has done in the past redefines how we live in the present by giving us a hope for the future. And that is why Peter can say, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Because Christ has won for his people an imperishable inheritance through his own suffering and death. And now he, call, he calls us to follow him through suffering and into glory. We are, according to Paul in Romans 6, united with Christ in a death like his, and we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It is a better and more secure hope, a living hope in a living Savior that does not disappoint us. And faced with the reality of suffering and life in a broken world, we, we ask, when we are in pain, we ask, how can God be good when He allows those He loves to endure such pain? And looking to the cross, we see Christ forever in perfect relationship with the Father and giving and receiving perfect affection for all eternity. And we see that the suffering that we endure as we follow Christ will lead where Christ Himself goes through suffering and into glory. This is a greater hope, a more secure foundation for us to cling to when the waves of affliction come. Christ has gone there before us, and He will see us through, refining our faith along the way, according to 1 Peter, so that all that remains in us is praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a difficult road just as it was for Christ. But it leads to someplace beautiful, imperishable, and unfading. Elizabeth Elliot, a famous missionary and author whose husband Jim Elliot was killed trying to reach indigenous people in Ecuador with the gospel, said in her grief, as she processed the loss of her husband as he sought to preach the gospel. She said, our vision is so limited we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protection from suffering. The love of God is of a very different nature altogether. It does not hate tragedy. It never denies reality. It stands in the very teeth of suffering. The love of God did not protect his own son. That was the proof of his love that he gave that son, that he let him go to Calvary's cross, though legions of angels might have rescued him. This is something better, something more trustworthy because it is already true. It does not look forward with a wish. It looks backward at a finished work to the God who became 
a man and stood in the very teeth of suffering for us. I don't know where you are this morning, emotionally and spiritually speaking. You may be kicking up your feet in life, comfortable and content, but more likely, you're where most of us are most of the time, facing the ugly truth that things are not as they should be in this world, and feeling the sting of brokenness of a life in this place that we call home right now. And whether that's from a broken relationship or an unfulfilling job, a difficult diagnosis or something else, there is a part of all of our hearts that asks from time to time, how could the God of the universe who says that He loves me, let it be this way? And though it's tempting to hear the answer, just believe harder. Give more, and God will bless you, and He will save you from this pain. The biblical truth is that He already has, and that the work of giving you a new identity and a birthright as God's child is secure, and that this present pain is a step on the path toward glory for those who trust in that salvation. And so we can say, in this In my living hope and my inheritance, I will rejoice. In what I trust in, the Savior who promises me and secures for me a better future, I will rejoice. Because what Christ has done in the past redefines how we live in the present by giving us a hope for the future.